Ephesians chapter 3. Paul says this in verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to his riches, the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to know something more here tonight of the love of God, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. We, we acknowledge here that we're not going to know any more apart from the work of your Spirit, not truly know it in our hearts and out in our lives. So help us by thy Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may be seated. I'd like to speak to you this evening on the subject of the difficult doctrine of the love of God. The difficult doctrine of the love of God, that's not my title. That's D.A. Carson. He wrote a book by that title, and I read it recently. So a lot of what you'll hear tonight was from that. But as an introduction, let me just say this. As a young Christian, I came across some teaching. I can't even remember now if it was in a book or if I heard somebody share this, some Christian speaker. Uh, And in this teaching, basically the idea was that there are three Greek words in the New Testament, three words that, uh, actually two in the New Testament, three Greek words uh, for love, um, eros, philos, and agape. Now, I'm, I may not even be saying those right. You're listening to someone who does not know Greek. <clears throat> so, when I heard this teaching about these Greek words, I thought, well, that's interesting. Uh, and, I, you know, they said, now this eros, that's sensual love, that's where we get our word erotic from. Uh, and then this philos, that's, uh, that was presented as a love that's kind of on the human level, like a brotherly love. And, uh, you know, Philadelphia, that's the city of brotherly love. And then this agape, well, that's godlike. That's the unconditional divine love, which then, of course, is the highest type of love, because that's the godlike type of love, the agape love. So, you know... Philos, that brotherly type love, that's good, but agape, yeah, that's the best. And this eros, well, that's not even found in the, in the New Testament. That's not even there. So, uh, you know, I kind of held on to that in my mind and been thinking in, uh, along those lines for quite a few years. Uh, kind of a vague understanding of these Greek words floating around in my mind. Has anybody else heard that type of teaching? Yeah, some of you have probably heard something like that. Well, uh, it sounds nice, but in reality, the Bible uses the word love in some ways that are different than that teaching. 
uh, I, you got to be careful about this Greek stuff. <laughs> and uh, you better be careful with what I say, because <laughs> I'm telling you something here. Somebody tell you about some Greek, but doesn't even know Greek. But, but let's just look at some things in the Bible that may uh, at least point out that we need to be careful about this type of thing. Like I say, it uh, sounds pretty nice, but actually the way the Bible uses the word love is not quite so simple. So let me just briefly share some examples of why this way of understanding these Greek words for love just really doesn't fit this, these nice, neat categories that I just outlined. Uh, we'll start with the most famous verse in the Bible. You can go ahead and turn to it, John 3.16. <clears throat> now, we're told here that God so loved the world. Now, you might expect that would be the word agape. And you're right. That's that, or a form of it anyway. Uh, the, uh, the word there is from the, the Greek word agape. So you think, well, that fits real well, what I've heard, this God-like, you know, divine love. But the problem is, if you, read, if you keep reading, you get down to verse 19. And it says, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light for their deeds are evil. So here's the word love. Do you know what word that is? Same word. Incredible, isn't it? Men agape. I mean, they, they agape darkness. They had this divine, godlike love for darkness. Doesn't fit. Something's amiss. So... There's a clue right off that maybe these categories aren't quite right. So maybe this agape doesn't necessarily refer to God-like divine love. Let's, let's look at a couple other examples. Let's uh, turn to John chapter 12. Twelve <clears throat> 12.43. Well, let's start with 42. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved... There's that word. It's from the same word, from that word agape. They loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Second Timothy chapter 4. And verse 10. For Demas, having loved, and that's the word from that same word, agape, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So, again, here you just can't fit in this idea that this is a godlike divine love. Demas had this godlike love that uh, he, loved the pres he loved this present world with. Doesn't fit. Second Peter chapter two. Now these could be these could be multiplied, and of course there are a lot of verses that show that that uh, uh, use the the word agape in the way that I explained to begin with, as a divine love. But I'm I'm just showing you that it's not always like that, and you can't make that into just a nice neat category. Second uh, Peter chapter two and verse fifteen. 
forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved, and that's that word agape, he loved the wages of unrighteousness. So here you have unsaved men doing bad things, but it's using this word agape, or a form of it, a verb form of it. Well, so that's so agape doesn't fit so well. What about this philos? Uh, does it refer to love in the human realm, a, a brotherly-like love? Well, let's look at John chapter 5. And verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. Well, you'd think that if, if this is God loving the Son, the God the Father loving God the Son, this would surely be agape. No, it's not. It's philos. So that doesn't fit so well. How about... Revelation 3.19 says, Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Well, that's the philos. Those whom I philos I reprove. So, again, God, speaking of God's Love, but here's here's an even stranger one. Revelation twenty two fifteen. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers, and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who philos loves and practices lying. So, you know, what's that got to do with uh, brotherly love? Love and practices lying. So, uh, again, those two don't seem to fit the simple system, at least the system that I was exposed to early on. Not only this, sometimes we find the Greek words, these two Greek words, used seemingly interchangeably. Philos and, and uh, agape. Luke 11 43. <clears throat> Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the front seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplace. Okay, so here they love. Well, that's agape. They love those respectful seats in the synagogue and respectful greetings in the marketplace. But then look at um, Matthew 23, 6 and 7. Jesus, again, speaking of the Pharisees, and they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogue. So here's a cross-reference. The thing is, here the word love is not agape, it's philos. 
So in a, in a very similar situation, here they love the places of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplace. So one place they use, it uses agape and the other place uses philos. And then lastly, I don't want to, I mean, this could go on and on, but I just, I just want to get the point across here. Uh, those tight categories that I was uh, taught early on, and they, these were well-meaning people, I'm sure, wherever I got it, I, 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 uh, I wish I could remember where I, where I picked this up. Uh, but nevertheless, it wasn't right. Uh, consider these two verses. John 3.35. We're showing here that they can be used seemingly interchangeably. John 3. Thirty-five. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. That's a form of the, the Greek word agape. The Father loves the Son. Okay. Now turn over to 520. For the Father loves the Son and shows all things, shows him all things that he himself is doing. So a very similar phrase for the father loves the son the former one was agape this is philos isn't that incredible well it's incredible if you were taught the way I was taught maybe it doesn't it's not so incredible to you but to me it was because I I realized you know this this doesn't fit uh, so what does this mean after, after I took all this time to point out one of the problems that I've had uh, in uh, this particular area. What's all this mean for the rest of us? Well, uh, first of all, it, I, I would say it means that you and I can pick up some dubious teaching from well-meaning people. I don't think these people were out trying to purposely distort the scripture or anything. Uh, so that's one of the things it means. Uh, another thing, it also means that just because some book or teacher or preacher uses Greek words to make a point doesn't mean that what they're saying is correct or accurate. Of course, we know that. That's obvious. But we tend to be a bit intimidated by those who seem to know more than we do in this area of Greek Greek language. And so, well, you know, he knows Greek. I must be, you know, better be quiet and listen to what he's got to say. Uh, really, I think we need to be careful about any teaching that is only known from the Greek. You know, if you've got to go to the Greek to this, and, it, and uh, it seems to be different from what you'd get from a diligent and prayerful studying of a good translation of the Bible, uh, be careful. Be careful. And then lastly, especially in, to relation, in relationship to this particular uh, t teaching concerning these Greek words for love, I think we can say it is probably a dead-end street, street to try to tie a particular manifestation of God's love or our love to some specific Greek word. Uh, this is how D.A. Carson put it. He said, uh, Not for a moment am I suggesting that there are not different kinds of love. All I am denying is that specific kinds of love can be reliably tied to a particular Greek word. 
context and other factors will decide, not mere vocabulary. In other words, figure out what that word love means, you go by the context, not by what Greek word was used. So that's kind of a little, I guess you'd call it an introduction, uh, to what I want to teach on the difficult doctrine of the love of God. So already you see there's a little difficulty there. Uh, and again, this is, a lot of this is from this book by D.A. Carson. Uh, I found some of the thoughts in that book were quite helpful to me, so I thought I'd share them with you, and hopefully they'll have some benefit for each one of us. I probably won't get all this, well, I know I won't get all this in tonight, so this will probably take two times. But uh, first, let me just ask this concerning the title of his book and this message. What about this thing of the difficult doctrine of the Word of God? Is understanding the love of God difficult? Have you ever thought about it that way ever? Or is it just, well, yeah, of course, we can understand God's love. Well, obviously I already let you know that I think this is correct. Uh, yes, it is difficult. In fact, I'd say it's impossible, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, to understand the love of God. Uh, apart from the Spirit of Christ working in us so that we might understand the Scriptures, you're not going to understand the love of God. For Christians, it will take with the help of the Holy Spirit, it will take meditation and prayer and study of the Scriptures and faith and faithfulness to know the love of God that surpasses all knowledge. Now, one of the biggest problems is that we live in the world and the world has such a distorted view of the love of God and such a deficient view of love that if we carry that over into our understanding of God's love, we are sure to go astray. You just If you take very much of what, how the world presents love and especially anything related to the love of God and start trying to carry it over into your understanding of, of a true scriptural understanding of the love of God, you're going to you're going to be filtering it through a lens that will filter out a lot of the correct understanding of what God's love is all about. God, to most people, is just nice. You know, he's just nice. That's what they think about the love of God be he a being or a force or whatever he's just nice to everybody that's kind of what the world thinks about if they think about the love of God at all D.A. Carson put it this way the love of God in our culture has been purged of anything that the culture finds uncomfortable the love of God has been sanitized democratized and above all sentimentalized this process has been going on for some time. 
It has not always been so. In generations when almost there were, in generations past, almost everyone believed in the justice of God, in some in some sense anyway. People sometimes found it difficult to believe in the love of God. Preaching of the love of God came as a wonderful good news then. Nowadays, if you tell people that God loves them, they're likely, they're unlikely, they're unlikely to be surprised. Well, of course, is the, the attitude. Of course God loves me. He's like that, isn't he? Besides that, why shouldn't he love me? I'm okay, you're okay, and God loves you and me. That's basically the attitude. If they have any idea about God at all, that's kind of the idea they have. God's just nice. He just likes people. Well, people want a domesticated God, a God you can control. And that's not the God of the Bible. But it's not just that the world is giving us a wrong view of God's love. There are truths presented in the Scripture concerning the character of God that are very hard to understand, especially in dealing with different aspects of God's love in relationship to his other attributes, like his holiness and his sovereignty, his control over evil, his justice, and his hatred of sin. It's just hard to understand. It's not that easy. It's a difficult doctrine. In God, his love is simple and non-complex and one with all his other attributes because God is one. He never suspends one attribute in order to exercise another. All of God does all that God does. But for us, finite, sinful, confused, uh, um, mixed up often, people... Uh, we often find trying to comprehend God's love along with his other attributes difficult, complex, and perplexing. If you haven't found it to be that way, you haven't thought very much. That's just the truth. We must come to the scriptures and humbly accept many things hard to understand. Well, one of the things that I found helpful in this book by D.A. Carson was he makes a distinction. He distinguishes five different ways the Bible speaks of the love of God. And I want to just give you those tonight, and we'll talk about them a little bit, and that'll be kind of an introduction for the next time. Five different ways the Bible speaks of the love of God. One... God's intra-Trinitarian love. That means love for the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. In the Trinity itself, there is love. Always has been. Always will be. So, God's intra-Trinitarian love. Second, God's love displayed in his providential care of his creation, especially people. So, there's a love displayed there. Third, 
God's yearning warning and invitation to all human beings as he invites and commands them to repent and believe. There's a love manifested there, for God so loved the world. Number four, God's special love towards his elect. And number five, God's conditional love towards his covenant people as he speaks in the language of discipline. Now, we'll just unpack those a little bit, but that's the five right there. Um, if you take any one of those and, as he says, absolutize it, make it the, the prominent or only thing you talk about, you're going to do an injustice to the other ones. And you won't understand the love of God properly. You need all five in their proper proportions, their biblical proportions, or you're not going to understand the love of God correctly. Uh, if you leave out any or overemphasize any, you're going to create a false system that squeezes out other important things, the Bible says, and thus you will finally distort your vision of the love of God, your understanding of the love of God. So we need to seek to integrate these various aspects of God's love in the proper biblical proportion and balance. Well, let's, let's just talk about them briefly here. Uh, the first one, the particular love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father. We've already looked at some verses related to that when we were uh, analyzing this uh, thing of philos and agape. Uh, John 3.35 and John 5.20. But the verses that I like the most, and I probably shouldn't have uh, say it that way because they're all wonderful verses but but uh, the ones that really mean a lot to me are the ones that that are, are emphasized at the end of Christ's prayer there in John 17 so let's look at those amazing incredible verses uh, John 17 and verse 24 At the end of this high priestly prayer that Christ gives just on the eve of the crucifixion, he says this, Father, I desire that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am in order that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me for thou didst love me before the foundation of the world. Love of the Father for the Son, before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known thee, yet I have known thee, and these have known that thou didst send me. And I have made thy name known to them, and will make it known. And now get this. Here's the way this prayer ends. This is incredible. And will make it known to them that the love wherewith thou didst love me may be in them and I in them. So here's this love, this intra-Trinitarian love that's been there for forever amongst the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, and Jesus is praying that that love may be in his people. 
the love wherewith thou didst love me may be in them and I in them. Uh, what can you say? It's amazing. It's an amazing thing that he would pray that prayer. And that prayer is going to be answered. This is a prayer of Christ. There's no question that the love that the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the Father is going to be in us. Whether that's philos or agape, I don't, I don't think it matters because it's going to be so incredible. Uh, it'll be beyond belief. Well, that's the first category. Another aspect of God's love. God's providential love over all that he has made. Matthew chapter 5. And uh, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. You see, the fact that he causes his son to rise on the evil and the, and the good is a manifestation of his love. That's what he's talking about, his love here. And he's saying there is a providential love that God has for all people. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God's love toward all men is shown in that he did good and gave rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying their hearts with food and gladness. That's Acts 14, 17. There's a love that God has, an aspect of God's love that goes out to all men in his providential dealings towards this world. Okay. Number three, God's love toward the fallen race in sending his son to die for sinners. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He sent his son for sinners and he invites and commands all human beings to come to him, to repent and believe the gospel to rebels, to rebellious image bearers of God, God lovingly calls out to all men. As I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live, turn back, Turn back from your evil ways. God is declaring to all men everywhere. He's declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. What is that? 
That's a manifestation of his love. Because he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would turn and live. So, that general love toward all mankind. Number four, God's particular, effective, selecting love towards his elect. Ephesians chapter 1. And, well, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's God's electing love. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love he he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will well he chose us in him there is a love directed particularly toward his chosen people. Those he chose, as it says here, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Um, It's directed towards what is often called in the scriptures the church. Uh, Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. But the point here, he loved the church. There's a special, particular, effectual love that God has for his people. Um, And then finally, and, you know, these are the ones that Carson brought out, and there may be more, but these are the five he brought out. Finally, God's love is sometimes said to be directed towards his own people in a provisional or conditional way, conditioned, that is, on repentance. In Jude, verse 21, Jude says, Keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourself in the love of God. And probably even clearer, uh, John 15, 9 and 10. John 15, see a lot of verses like this in the Old Testament where but we're zeroing in on the one, the ones in the New Testament here. John 15, 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, 
you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So this is a, a love that's conditioned on obedience, <coughs> directed particularly towards his covenant people, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. You might call this a disciplining love. So there is a, it's, there's a disciplining love of God based on our obedience. It's different than these other loves. Five different loves. Now, those were helpful to me, especially as you start unpacking some of the things that we normally hear uh, concerning God's love. And that's what I'm going to do next time. Uh, it would be it'd be too long, and it took me too long to prepare this part, and I didn't get, I know where I'm going, but I'm not there yet. And so here's what we're going to aim at next time. I, w- I want to take some of these five ways that the Bible speaks of the love of God, and I analyze some of the statements that we often hear, like, God's love for you is unconditional. I just heard that, actually, as we were starting out on this vacation. Going out over the radio, it was just said to everybody that listening, God's love for you is unconditional. So our question, and my question that as I heard that, is that right? Is that true? So there's one. God's love is unconditional. You'll hear that one quite often. How about... God loves everybody the same way. Is that true? How about this one? God hates sin but loves a sinner. Is that true? Well, that this is this is why you gotta come back next week. <laughs> Stay tuned. That's what we're gonna talk about some. Uh, Lord willing, next time.